Gauging the North Korean threat today, Wednesday, April 10th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The bluster from North Korea keeps coming. This analyst predicts it will continue at least for a few weeks. But at the end of the month, I think things will calm down and he can uh, claim victory that he's kind of defended his country and then he'll move on. And later, Protestants in Northern Ireland reclaim the Irish language. I was brought up in a very Protestant area and for me to learn Irish would have been considered very strange. Plus, hunting for magnetic termites in Australia. Knock on the front door, see if anyone's home. Not much activity. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If you want to know what North Korea's leaders are up to, don't expect a press conference with statements of fact. You'll likely learn more by gauging the tone of state TV broadcasts from Pyongyang. North Korean state TV programs, complete with menacing-sounding soundtracks, carry the latest pronouncements from the regime. Lately, the broadcasts have been full of threats and bluster. Today, the bluster was in the form of a poem entitled Final War with the U.S. Imperialists. The reading is totally over the top, so is the music that sounds like the score for a scene in The Godfather when Michael Corleone kills his nemesis in the restaurant. Kind of makes you chuckle rather than shake in your boots. But U.S. officials are not laughing. Today, Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel warned that North Korea is skating very close to a dangerous line with all its anti-American threats. So what can North Korea actually do? Does the country's military have what it takes to engage in a final war with U.S. imperialists, as the poem goes? I asked Joel Witt to give us a reality check on Pyongyang's missile capabilities. Witt is a former U.S. negotiator with North Korea. They're working on a range of different missiles from ones that might eventually reach the United States to ones that can hit targets in the region. In terms of what they definitely have now, I would say they probably can reach Guam with the missile that everyone's been talking about them testing, and they certainly can reach Japan and South Korea. So are these missiles armed? I mean, if they reach Guam, what then happens? Well, look, don't forget, we're talking about them testing a missile. Uh, There's no one who thinks they're going to mount a nuclear warhead on top of the missile and firing at Guam right now. There's no reason for them to do that. And there's no sign that they're preparing for that kind of general conflict. So, um, you know, the missile they're going to fire off now is a medium, what's called a medium range missile. And they're just going to be testing it to see how well it works or doesn't work. And do they have in their capability, in their military capability, warheads that can go on these missiles? Well, you know, their experts disagree on this. I know some very reputable experts who think they can put a nuclear warhead on top of the Musadon or similar missiles, not on top of ICBMs. And then there are other experts who say, no, they can't. So... You know, we're really not sure about that, but 
we shouldn't forget they've been working for over 20 years on developing nuclear warheads for missiles. So if they haven't developed them by now, they've been doing a pretty bad job of it. So that's the background on the missiles in North Korea. Nukes are another story. What kind of nuclear weapons does North Korea certainly have and how soon could they be put uh, on a missile? Well, what we know now is that North Korea probably has around eight nuclear weapons um, based on plutonium that they produced over the past decade, and that North Korea seems to be working on another way of producing material for nuclear weapons, and that's enriching uranium. But we don't know whether that part of their program is operational yet. And as I said earlier, uh, there's a division between experts on whether the North can put any of these weapons on top of even the medium or shorter range systems. But I tend to believe, given the length of time they've been working on it, that they can probably do that. Joel Witt, we've seen, of course, this amping up of rhetoric before from North Korea, from Kim and his family. Uh, But his father and grandfather usually left room for an exit strategy, a pressure valve of sorts to get out of confrontation mode. How much room has Kim, though, given himself? Oh, I don't think it's a problem for him to to move forward with an exit strategy. Um, You know, they'll fire the missile off, maybe. I'm not sure they will, but that's what all the reports say. They'll have uh, their April 15th celebration, which is normal for every year. Then we have a U.S.-South Korean exercise going on, which isn't going to end until the end of April. So we can expect more tensions throughout the rest of the month. But at the end of the month, I think things will calm down and he can uh, claim victory that he's kind of defended his country and then he'll move on. Joel Witt, former U.S. negotiator with North Korea, thank you. Thanks a lot. As we mentioned earlier, it's often hard to take the dramatic threats from Pyongyang seriously, even if they do present a challenge for the U.S. government. David Straub is associate director of Korean studies at Stanford University. He thinks North Korea suffers from an image issue of its own making. North Korea's leadership uh, conducts itself in a way that is frankly ridiculous uh, in many respects. They make uh, threats that are extremely bombastic, while everyone knows that North Korea is a failed state with a tiny economy. The United States government, though, uh, presumably takes it seriously. I mean, they're they're not laughing at uh, these videos and and these poems that we hear from the North Korean government. Well, uh, yes, of course, the U.S. government is taking it seriously, and they should. We have two basic problems. One is the longer-term threat of North Korea continuing its nuclear and missile programs development. The other is the immediate threat that North Korea may again conduct a conventional attack on South Korea as it did twice in 2010. We must go back to George W. Bush, who lumped North Korea together with Iran and Iraq as as the axis of evil. Compare North Korea with Iran right now. We know the Iraq story. North Korea is uh, far more advanced in the nuclear sphere than Iran is. North Korea has already tested three nuclear devices, while Iran has not even developed uh, uranium enrichment to the level to make nuclear devices. So what's the disconnect? This country gets very concerned, it seems, when Iran kind of saber rattles, but uh, we chuckle when North Korea does it. Well, we chuckle at North Korea's uh, rhetoric, 
The problem is that North Korea threatens our South Korean allies, and moreover, China is a protecting power, in effect, for North Korea. So what is Iran doing in such a way? If it's not as advanced as North Korea, I mean, why do they get a reputation for being such a threat right now? Well, the focus has been until recently somewhat off North Korea because there's not been a whole lot we can do to immediately get North Korea to stop what it's been doing. On the other hand, we're still hoping that we can stop Iran from continuing with its nuclear programs. Moreover, there's a great deal of concern in the United States about Iran because of the threat that the country could pose to Israel. You know, we we spoke last week with uh, Korea expert uh, Jeffrey Bader, who said a line that that has stuck with me, and that is that North Korea is basically engaging in an international game of extortion, an international extortion racket. Let me be blunt here. I mean, is that game being played by North Korea playing the crazy card? I mean, is that what gets people both chuckling and also taking them seriously at the same time? Well, North Korea is trying to make us fearful not only of their capabilities, but also of their intentions. Of course, that's done in many places by many leaders. Uh, Richard Nixon tried to make the Soviets believe that he was a little off balance. But, you know, I think that misses the fundamental factors at work here. North Koreans are not crazy. They have a bizarre system that makes them act in bizarre ways. But they actually have strategic aims. Their immediate aim is to bolster their regime at home, and their long-term aim is to gain hegemony on the Korean peninsula over South Korea. And one of the reasons they have developed nuclear weapons is they want to intimidate the United States into eventually accepting North Korea's nuclear weapons and eventually have the U.S. leave the Korean peninsula. And so from your experience and what you've seen, do you think it's going to work? Absolutely not. It's totally delusional. And I think they're engaging in wishful thinking, in some degree of desperation, and perhaps from their perspective, nuclear weapons are a kind of a silver bullet that will solve all of these problems that they don't otherwise see a solution to. David Straub, Associate Director of Korean Studies at Stanford, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Another country that's posed problems for the U.S. is Venezuela. Sunday's election day there, and two men are running to replace President Hugo Chavez, who died five weeks ago. But if you're watching Venezuelan TV, you might think Chavez was still alive and in the race. There's only one TV station left in Venezuela that's openly critical of the country's socialist government, Globovision. But it might not serve that role for much longer, as John Otis reports from Caracas. Globovision was founded in 1994 as Venezuela's first 24-hour news channel. Four years later, Hugo Chavez was elected president. But as Chavez moved Venezuela towards socialism, he clashed with Globovision and other independent TV stations. Chavez claimed they were part of the right-wing opposition that supported the 2002 coup that briefly removed him from power. That's Chavez in 2007 denouncing Globovision for supposedly encouraging people to assassinate him. Chavez died last month from cancer. But in recent years, his government transformed the television landscape. It hit independent stations with insults and fines and threatened to revoke their broadcast licenses. It also built up pro-government TV channels. Many stations softened their coverage of the government just to survive. Roberto Giusti hosts a news show on Globovision. 
He says the government, now headed by acting President Nicolás Maduro, wants total control over communications in Venezuela. There are still some independent newspapers and radio stations in Venezuela, but they reach a smaller audience. On TV, there's just Globovisión, which is broadcast only in Caracas and Valencia. The station has paid a huge price for its editorial stance. In 2009, pro-Chavez thugs attacked Globovision's offices. The next year, Globovision president Guillermo Zuluaga fled to Miami to avoid what he called trumped-up charges of business fraud. And the station has received multi-million dollar fines. Reporters also feel the heat. Maria Hernandez tells me government supporters recently attacked her after they spotted the Globovision logo on her microphone. They began to scream and throw things at me. They yelled at me to get out. I couldn't finish my report. I couldn't be there. I felt like an outcast. But the biggest problem for Globovision is that its transmission license expires in 2015. Maduro, who is Chavez's hand-picked successor, is expected to win the presidential election this month, and his government is unlikely to renew Globovision's license. Last month, Zuluaga announced in a letter to Globovision employees that was read on the air that the station will be sold to Juan Carlos Cordero. He's a Caracas insurance executive with reportedly close ties to the government. Government supporters, like Isela Gamboa, welcome the sale. She says instead of a TV station, Globovision was a political heavyweight, always plotting against Chavez. Cordero hasn't commented on the pending transaction, but political analyst Carlos Romero points out that the government wouldn't approve a deal that kept Globovision in the hands of its critics. Everybody is expecting that the new owners of Globovision will be more friendly with the government and the official party. Globovision President Zuluaga did put one condition on the sale. It's the only station that provides in-depth coverage of opposition candidate Enrique Capriles. To provide a megaphone for the Capriles presidential campaign, Zuluaga said he would not ink the final paperwork until after the election. For The World, I'm John Otis, Caracas. You can find more of our coverage on the Venezuela elections and the death of Hugo Chavez. That's all at theworld.org. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Spain now says its economy will shrink more than expected this year. And as the country's financial crisis deepens, consumers are spending less and less, especially on luxury items like horses. During Spain's economic boom times, lots of people bought and bred horses. They were a status symbol and fun to ride. But with everyone cutting back, the horses are often the first to go. The problem is, as the world's Jerry Haddon reports, where do they go? At Miguel Reverte's riding school and stables outside Barcelona, young students lead their horses back to their stalls after class. 
About a third of Reverte's 100 stalls stand empty. He says there used to be a waiting list to board horses here. 15 years ago, people lived well, he says, had good-paying jobs. So people bred and bought luxury items, like horses. Now they can't get rid of them fast enough. Some horses are just left at stables. Those would be the luckier ones. They have food, shelter, visits from the vet. Across Spain, thousands of cash-strapped horse owners are just leaving their animals anywhere. They leave them to die, says Aldo Alcaraz, a young Spaniard who takes in abandoned horses. Desperate owners will ditch them in some fenced-off lot, he says, in an abandoned building or some old unused factory. You can be sure it'll be somewhere, he says, where there's no food or water. The Alcaraz family horse sanctuary, about an hour from Barcelona, is overflowing as are many such refuges across Spain. On a recent day, Alcaraz's bony, scarred, and limping horses feed quietly on a pile of hay in the main corral. Alcaraz says they try to find homes for these animals, but most never leave here, which means they can't take new horses in. Caballos abandonados. Esta, esta, este, ese, esta. Alcaraz introduces me to the animals, and their stories are pretty horrific. There's a kid's pony named Samba that was found wandering along a highway. Katana, a pale, broken shell of a horse, was found near death tied to a tree in a public park in Barcelona. Alcaraz says people ditch their animals without concern for the consequences or for the trouble they might get in, because horse abandonment is not a crime in Spain. To be fair, many people try to sell their animals first, but in today's market... I called Spain's biggest horse trader, a guy named Jorge Montiel in Barcelona. He says top-shelf show and racehorses always sell. But your typical Spanish riding horse? For the last year, he says, there's been no demand at all. People are trying to just give them to me, he says, for free. Anything to keep them from the freezers. By the freezers, Montiel means the slaughterhouses. Horse slaughter went up by about 30% last year. Most of the meat was exported, some of it possibly ending up in processed foods, part of a continent-wide scandal. But a typical riding horse isn't fit for consumption, not even as animal feed, because it's been vaccinated. So families who can no longer afford the $400 a month upkeep costs and who can't sell their horse or find a sanctuary just quietly slip the reins off. Experts say an abandoned, domesticated horse can typically survive for about six months in the wild before starving or dying of disease. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. A quick follow-up to that story. Spain may be losing domesticated horses, but has now gained some wild ones. A group of activists has just released a pair of rare horses from Mongolia into northern Spain. They're Przewalskis, whose ancestors once roamed the Iberian Peninsula before being hunted off in the Paleolithic Age, which ended about 10,000 years ago. You can see a report from Spain's CYL television at theworld.org. Tomorrow, 94 of the world's best professional golfers are set to tee up at Augusta National for the Masters. All eyes, of course, will be on the likes of veterans like Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, and last year's winner, Bubba Watson. Then there's Northern Ireland's Rory McIlroy, one of the young players in pursuit of his first green jacket. And then there's China's Guan Tian Long, who will make history when he plays tomorrow. I know. You're also saying who? After tomorrow, you won't, though. Guan will be the youngest player ever to play at the Masters. He's 14. Marco, to put that in perspective, he wasn't even born yet when Tiger Woods won his first Masters in 1997. That's the world's Clark Boyd who joins me here in the studio. He's been known to spoil a good walk by picking up a golf club. Clark, uh, he's 14, as you say. How did he get his ticket punch for Augusta? 
he won the uh, Asian Pacific Amateur Tournament last fall. And um, this is, you know, part of uh, professional golf's big push to get the sport as popular as possible and to bring in people from as many different parts of the world as, as possible. And, and he, he won the amateur tournament. So he's, he's going to be playing uh, at least for Thursday and Friday in the first two rounds uh, in, in Georgia this week. With the big guys. So put this in perspective for us. Who held the previous record for youngest player ever to compete at the Masters? Well, the previous record was held by an Italian golfer by the name of Matteo Manassero. Uh, he was 16 when he competed a couple of years ago. And the funny part is, is that Guantian Long will be playing in the first two rounds with Matteo Manassero this week. Very cool. So uh, uh, incredible opportunity for Guan. What, what's he been uh, getting up to this week to, to get ready? Well, it's, it's, it's been incredible to watch sort of the media buzz around this kid. Uh, he's gotten to play practice rounds with some of, the, some of the greats, including the golfer that he grew up idolizing. And you're going to be shocked to hear that that's Tiger Woods. He has played rounds with Tiger in the past, but uh, they played a round on Monday afternoon. And, and afterwards, Guantian Long at a press conference was asked, what's it like to play with Tiger? It's pretty exciting to watch him. And uh, he gives me many advice. And uh, every time I play with him, I feel a lot better and uh, give myself some confidence and uh, it's very good. Kind of a humble guy. Um, what do the more veteran players make of Guan? Well, most, most of them just can't believe that there's a 14-year-old who's playing in the Masters. I mean, that is, that is super young. I think, you, you know, you've seen in the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years on the women's tour, a lot of very, very young Asian women coming up and playing, but you haven't seen these sorts of young Asian players coming up uh, in, in the, on the men's side. But th- I think that's all about to change because people are saying that Guan Tianlong is, is like the tip of the iceberg. In fact, there's a Chinese kid who's younger, who's only 12, who is actually qualified for a European tour event. So I think the face of men's golf is going to be changing significantly in the coming years. And then, of course, there is old Rory McIlroy, who's uh, only 23 years of age. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And in fact, um, everybody wants to talk about Guan Tianlong. And, and they, asked, uh, they asked Rory McIlroy at a press conference about him, and here's what he said. I just met him in the locker room there before coming here. I was just like 14 years old and playing in the Masters. It's, you know, I just hope he enjoys it this week because, you know, at that age, that's what it's all about. The irony there, Marco, is that, you know, from the way McElroy was talking, you'd think he was, you know, like 45, 50-year-old veteran of the tour. He kid's 23 years old, and it's, 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 just, it's just funny. It's got to be an incredible moment for golf in China as well right now. I think it is. I, I, you know, all, all signs indicate that it's a big deal. Uh, you have to remember that golf was outlawed as a sport until 1984. No kidding. In China, yeah, it was considered, you know, sort of the, a rich man's sport, and the communist government didn't like it very much. Of course, all that has changed significantly, and now it's really a status sort of thing, you know, and this, people want to play golf, and golf is definitely one of those things where you've got to have money and time to play it. Guan Tianlong, China's 14-year-old golf phenom, will be tracking his progress at the Masters over the next few days. The world's Clark Boyd, thank you. You're welcome, Marco. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, low-riding car culture goes global. You know, it looked like regular low-riding, except there was a Japanese girl on the cover. You know, their magazines open up differently than ours. And I started flipping the pages, and I was like, oh, my God, is this Los Angeles? Nope, it's not just East L.A. anymore. That story and more ahead on The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, 
providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston. We're going to talk Irish today, as in the Irish language. Our language editor, Patrick Cox, host of the World in Words podcast, joins me in the studio. And Patrick, first of all, who speaks Irish today? Well, not many. There are very few native speakers of of Irish these days, sometimes known as Gaelic. Somewhere between 80,000 and 130,000. A lot of people learn it, but not to a very high standard. The government has a ton of programs supporting it, but it remains a very vulnerable language, much more so than, say, Welsh. And given Irish pride and uh, patriotism, why are there so few speakers? Well, Irish is a victim of its own history. First, for hundreds of years, the language was suppressed by the English who occupied Ireland and they outlawed the language. Then when Ireland won its independence between the First World War and the Second World War, the new Irish state, understandably, uh, viewed the language as a cornerstone of nationalism, of nation-building. So kids were made to learn it at school. And, you know, Marco, I interviewed my dad about this because he was one of those kids. And he learned Irish at school for more than 10 years. And I asked him what he remembers. I know how to count to, um, to nine. In, two, three, cahar, cúig, she, shak, that is one to nine. And then also I remember this little, this little request. On will Cadagom Dolomark Marche the Holly. It means, please, miss, may I leave the room? Please, miss, may I leave the room? I, I suspect that's asking the teacher if uh, he can go to the bathroom. Yeah, and that's probably why he remembers it, because he doesn't <laughs> remember anything else from all of those years of learning Irish at school. Um, English was, and, and it still is, so dominant. And here's the other side of using the language for nation-building, is that it becomes a symbol rather than you know, a, a way of communicating. Right. So how does this play out in Northern Ireland, where symbols are so important? Right. I mean, during the troubles there in the 60s, 70s and 80s, which we're now being reminded of an awful lot with the death of Margaret Thatcher, it was very much, the language was very symbolic. It was, it was uh, for Catholics, it was a symbol of resistance to British rule, famously the Catholic political party that was most closely associated with the IRA was called Sinn Féin. Uh, which means ourselves alone in Irish. And meanwhile, the Protestants, they disdained the language. They saw it as a Catholic symbol, so they didn't speak it. So as a result, the language became stuck, you know, fetishized and romanticized by one side and ignored by the other side. But now there is peace in Northern Ireland and there are signs of some new developments, some new attitudes to the Irish language. Patrick Cox, that's the background. Thanks for that. Let's hear more now on the story from Northern Ireland. Here's reporter Aaron Schrank. Lower Newtonards Road in East Belfast is solid Protestant territory. It was a hotspot for sectarian violence at the height of the Troubles. Today, British flags flutter from fences. Murals of masked gunmen adorn the sides of buildings. It's pretty much the last place you'd expect to find people learning Irish. But inside a community center, about a dozen people from the neighborhood are doing just that. So, Tommy, you wouldn't have seen this a few decades ago. Just ask Sandra Irvine. When I was at school, I was brought up in East Belfast in a very Protestant area, and for me to learn Irish would have been considered very strange. 
Irvine, though, had always been curious about the language. I did actually attempt to learn Irish at that point, but couldn't find anywhere that I could go to. So it was in my mind for a very long time, but it wasn't an option. Now it is. There are classes here five times a week. This push for Protestant Irish learners is largely the work of one woman. Uh, my name is Linda Irvine. My job is Irish Language Development Officer for East Belfast. As Irish Language Development Officer, Irvine's job is to convince people who at best see the language as irrelevant and at worst as an enemy tongue to care about it. She tells them to look back into history to when plenty of Protestants here spoke Irish. What the language does is it allows people to explore the idea of Irishness in an unthreatening way. We are Irish. I feel I'm Irish. This means a lot coming from Linda Irvine. Her brother-in-law, David, was a well-known member of the Ulster Volunteer Force, a Protestant paramilitary group. He did six years in prison before leading one of Northern Ireland's smaller political parties. It was almost like we gave people permission from the Protestant community. Like, if we could do it, it was all right. It sort of took the sting out of it or something. Linda Irvine's efforts coincide with a push across Northern Ireland, backed by the government, for Irish language learning. It's called LIFA, meaning fluent. The culture minister whose pet project this is, is a Catholic and former IRA militant. But the campaign does have some cross-community support. Basil McRae is one of the leading Protestant politicians backing LIFA. He's in a Belfast cafe, asking patrons their thoughts on the Irish language. McRae says that for Protestants to embrace Irish, it needs to be freed from its divisive past. And he has a little dig at some Catholic politicians. He says they still use the language as a political prop, especially during heated debates in Parliament. You know when they're annoyed because they they respond in a huge amount of Irish, it's like flying a flag. You go, fair enough, but it's got nothing to do about language and everything to do about politics. There's a well-known saying in Belfast, attributed to a Catholic Sinn Féin politician. Every word of Irish spoken is like another bullet being fired in the struggle for Irish freedom. It shows just how political the recent history of this language has been. But not everyone here remembers that history. At a mixed Catholic and Protestant school south of Belfast, Cuthbert Aratora, or Torah for short, is speaking Irish with a room full of 10 and 11-year-olds. These kids were born after the peace agreement. Torah is here to show them that the language doesn't have to be about politics. He's a Zimbabwean immigrant who moved to East Belfast 20 years ago. I'm a Protestant, so I don't buy to the stories that politicians use to justify pursuing certain narratives. The language isn't owned by a political entity. It is something that is living. For Tura, Irish has been a way to connect with his new home. Before moving here, he didn't know how little it was spoken. Now he works to save it. Chirgan Changa, Chirgan Anam. A country with no language is a country without a soul. There you go. Say that. Chirgan Changa, Chirgan Anam. Tora is among a wave of immigrants coming to Northern Ireland who don't view Irish with decades of discord in mind. They see it as just another minority language, one that might be on its way out. Whether or not they're learning Irish, and few are, they are at least helping normalize attitudes towards the language. And maybe that will mean even a few more locals on either side of the Protestant-Catholic divide will consider picking it up. For The World, I'm Aaron Schrank in Belfast.
And you can see pictures of those young Irish learners at theworld.org. That's also where you can hear our podcast on language, The World in Words. And by the way, tomorrow we'll hear from Northern Irish singer-songwriter Stefan Hanvey. His father was a photojournalist who recorded many of the more violent moments in recent Irish history. And the young Hanvey has written songs to accompany some of his father's photos. That's tomorrow on The World. For today's GeoQuiz, we're heading to Australia's top end. That's in the northern part of this southern continent. We want you to name the region in which the top end is located. It's the least populous of Australia's eight major states and territories. It's bigger than Texas and California combined, but only a quarter of a million people live here. In the southern part, you'll find the famous Ayers Rock, also known as Uluru. And up north, near the capital of Darwin, you'll spot some other curious natural formations. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program Nova recently went to see them when he was in this region. Ready for the answer? It's Australia's Northern Territory. Ari sent us this audio postcard from the top end. If you drive from the city of Darwin and head south, things get rural pretty quickly. And soon, if you look off the side of the road, you'll see strange structures through the trees. They look like giant gray planks of dirt. They stand on edge as if surging out of the ground. So when I spotted one of these monoliths, about 12 feet tall, I couldn't resist taking a closer look. So we're coming upon this giant... Well, it looks like a tombstone, but a very, very large tombstone for a grave. It's not a tombstone, though. It's a termite mound, says Graham Brown. He's the former curator of insects at the Northern Territory Museum, and he says there's something peculiar about this type of mound. Well, the orientation of the nest is is basically north-south. So it's a bit like a compass needle. Oh, and hence the common name of, of magnetic termite. Magnetic termites. The mounds these insects build, they're pretty well aligned with the poles of the earth. It's long been a mystery just how and why the insects do this. We still don't know with any certainty. But, Brown says, there are clues. Now, the termites themselves are not magnetic. They wouldn't stick to your fridge. Rather... There is some suggestion that the termites can be affected by magnetic fields. In one experiment, scientists buried magnets in the ground on either side of where termites were starting to build new mounds. When the researchers came back years later, the termites had abandoned these mounds, perhaps because their sense of direction had been thrown off. So it seems that the termites can sense the Earth's magnetic field, which is how they orient their homes. But as for why they do it? Well, let's have a look and see if we can get some activity. Graham Brown explains that these towering mounds are essentially termite apartment buildings. It just sort of knock on the front door to see if anyone's home. This one, well, it seems the termites have moved on. Not much activity. But if the mound were still occupied, Brown says, it might contain tens of thousands of termites. And to comfortably house all those insects, you need good architecture. He says all the little rooms, or galleries, need just the right moisture level and a good internal temperature. And this north-south alignment of the termite mounds, it seems to help keep the termites comfortable. This being northern Australia, the sun is hot in the morning and even hotter in the afternoon. And around noon, when the sun is strongest, since these mounds are long and skinny and point north-south, at that hour, it's just the edge of the mound that faces the sun. Giving a narrow profile to the sun at that particular time of day. 
which keeps the termites from getting overheated. At least that's one theory. Though if it's such a good way to build a mound, why don't more termite species do it? Graham Brown says that's just one more puzzle. It's just so fascinating. And I mean, Northern Territory is just such frontier country. And he's pleased to say it's the only place in the world where you can find magnetic termites and their curious homes. It's wonderful. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, just off the Stewart Highway, Australia's Northern Territory. You've got to see what these mounds look like. It's like termite Stonehenge out there. You'll find photos at theworld.org. And tonight on PBS, Travel Down Under, as Nova looks for the origins of life. That's the premiere episode of Nova's four-part series, Australia's First Four Billion Years. We and Nova will have more from Australia next Wednesday. Since the outcry over the gang rape and the subsequent death of a young woman in Delhi last December, we at The World have discussed violence against women around the globe a lot. Those conversations have been dominated by the voices of female activists. But tomorrow we're hosting a live video chat exploring the role of men in fighting violence against women. One activist who will be joining us online is 24-year-old Ali Shahidi from Kabul, Afghanistan. A few years ago, Shahidi helped his sister escape from an abusive marriage in neighboring Iran. He wasn't always a defender of women. Shahidi says when he was growing up in Afghanistan, the abuse suffered by his mother and sisters didn't shock him. I was raised in a family where violence against women was a, a very ordinary, everyday thing. And uh, we used to see her mom being beaten. And um, almost every, sing- every African family witnesses and experiences domestic violence in their homes. And we were raised by that culture, and uh, I became violent. And even women, they, uh, they accepted the status quo. They accepted the, whatever was happening on them. Uh, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying that this is, this is our culture. Maybe you can help us understand, I mean, what goes through the average Afghan male's head when he happens to be beating a woman? Why is he thinking he's doing it? If a man beats his wife or can control his wife or can control his sisters, uh, he he feels proud for this. The entire culture is uh, something that accepts uh, men's superiority uh, to be dominant and to to be masculine. You yourself beat your sister, you write, when you were younger. Yes. Yes. When I was younger, uh, I was controlling their mobility and uh, I was controlling their appearance. They look the way they would appear outside. And uh, if I didn't want them to do anything, to do something, or if I didn't want them to go outside and if they were persistent, I had, yes, I was using uh, violence. But tell me, Uh, Ali, what changed for you personally? The challenge of uh, rescuing my sister from her abusive husband made me go through the laws, Islamic laws and uh, domestic laws about women's rights. And it started more and more about women's rights. Because when we decided to divorce my sister from her husband, there were mullahs, our um, uh, lawmakers, who opposed with our decision. And uh, they were mainly uh, in favor of uh, men, uh, the man. Uh, everybody was uh, was against us. Even our very close relatives, they were all blaming us and they were all against us. Well, I couldn't accept this. Uh, gradually, uh, this really made me more, more and more passionate about, about women's rights because I wanted to advocate for my sister. I wanted to save her. I wanted to rescue her. Where is your sister now? 
and she's now here with us in Kabul and she's safe and her husband is in Iran and uh, he has no access to us and uh, they're divorced now. 24-year-old Kabul activist Ali Shahidi. Find out more about how he helped his sister escape the husband who was abusing her by joining Shahidi in our live video chat tomorrow. Just go to theworld.org at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. The Army private who's admitted leaking more than half a million classified documents to WikiLeaks was back in a courtroom in Fort Meade, Maryland today. Bradley Manning has already pleaded guilty to some lesser charges, but he's still accused of aiding the enemy. And today he won a small victory on that front. A military judge ruled the prosecution has to prove that Manning had reason to believe the information he leaked could hurt the U.S. and help the enemy. In this case, al-Qaeda, its regional affiliates, and an unnamed terrorist group. But the prosecution also got some good news at the pretrial hearing. The judge cleared the way for one of the Navy SEALs who staged the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Pakistan to testify at the trial. Prosecutors say the witness retrieved a hard drive from bin Laden's home that contained some of the WikiLeaks documents. The witness is expected to testify anonymously under the name John Doe. That wouldn't happen until June at the earliest when court-martial begins. Check out the latest blog updates from Arun Roth, who is covering the hearing in Fort Meade for The World and Frontline. It's all at theworld.org. Finally today, a very quirky take on how American culture spreads around the globe in unexpected ways. Lou Rider. Yeah, 70s band War wrote the anthem. Cheech and Chong made low riding famous in the movies. And when you think about people driving their cars impossibly low to the ground, you can't help but think about the Mexican-American neighborhood of East L.A., But going low and slow has gone global, with low-rider car clubs popping up in very surprising places. Denise Sandoval is a professor of Chicano and Chicana Studies at Cal State University, Northridge, where she's studying low-riding. It's about as low as you go to the ground, and it's about going slow, getting people to look at your car, because when they're looking at your car, they're looking at you. How did people in these barrios in L.A. start moving their cars lower to the ground? What was the point? Lowrider culture is part of the post-car culture boom that happened um, after World War II. There was a turnover of secondhand cars. The car became an affordable option for working-class people. In particular, what it meant for black and brown communities in Los Angeles is, you know, the car represents middle-class status. So you can see these old photos of L.A. in post-World War II into the 50s and 60s, and families would take pictures right in front of their car. Right. Um, mm. and, and so it's sort of like, well, what the car's like another family member. The car is sort of a symbol of the American dream. The, the whole idea of a car being low to the ground, was that imported in any way from south of the border? Or was it in, entirely an L.A. innovation? That's the sort of the million dollar question. You know, you have Española, New Mexico, that's the self-proclaimed lowrider capital of the world. And Northern California says it started there. So it was very hard to pinpoint where it started. <laughs> And it wasn't something that came over from Mexico. The connection, though, between Tijuana and L.A. is important because there was car customizing shops down there. So sometimes Chicanos would take their cars down there because you could get quality customizing cheaper. But the cars were American. Low riding is an American tradition. 
So lowrider culture has spread well beyond Los Angeles and California. It's gone around the world. I'm wondering when you first started noticing uh, lowrider culture taking off. When I was in graduate school, I found a Japanese lowrider magazine. And, you know, it looked like regular lowriding, except there was a Japanese girl on the cover. You know, their magazines open up differently than ours. And I started flipping the pages and I was like, oh, my God, is this Los Angeles? Because the guys were dressed like homies with the baggy pants and the plaid shirts. But it was in Japan. It looked just a little too different. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was sort of like, whoa, what's happening here? What does it mean to wear a brown pride t-shirt in Japan or wearing the Virgen de Guadalupe, the Mexican Virgin Mary, or the Aztec calendar? Car culture, it really is a dynamic space to understand sort of not just race and ethnicity class, the you know commodification of culture, and now, like you mentioned, sort of the international spread of L.A. urban culture. Where else have you seen uh, lowrider culture spread? I gather in Brazil they're pretty uh, enthusiastic about lowriding. Also in Barcelona, in Spain, they have lowrider bike clubs. And then um, Japan is the big one as well. Has a worldwide spread of lowrider culture kind of boomeranged back to L.A. and is now influencing lowrider culture there? I don't really think so. Not yet. The one I forgot to mention is the spread of lowrider culture to Mexico because of the deportation of undocumented immigrant backs, specifically youth that maybe grew up in L.A. or in U.S. and now are back in Mexico, they've taken sort of that Chicano culture back over there. So it's really, that's fascinating because you could think about how Mexican-Americans sort of used cars and, you know, used art and fashion to create a unique identity of what it meant to be American, you know, with their parents were Mexican and how they reinterpreted the culture here. But now over there... They're using a Chicano sort of cultural expression to express themselves. When I was in Guadalajara, Mexico in 2009, their lowrider car clubs came to visit us out there. And these two kids rode their lowrider bikes two hours into Mm. Guadalajara so they could meet us. And for so many years, Mexicans would look down at Mexican-American culture. You know, they would call us pochos, which literally translates to spoiled fruit. But now in a lot of urban areas, because of the movement back, this younger generation is redefining sort of even Mexican culture. Interesting. Co-opting it and redefining it. Mm-hmm. Denise, what's the lowest you've ever seen a lowrider go to the ground? Man, I've seen a lowrider so low that you could slide just a piece of paper underneath it. So th- not advised to go over speed bumps because they they get stuck, right? Well, that's why hydraulics was uh, such an important innovation. In the early 60s, lowriders got the idea to put surplus World War II aircraft parts onto a car. That'll and raise it those, pretty quickly. So, yeah, so the hydraulics were what were used to raise and lower the flaps of the wings on an airplane. And Amazing. so somebody got the idea of to put it on a car. And Denise, as to that curious line in War's tune, Lowrider, why is Lowrider a little higher? Obviously, you're getting high being low, right? Right. So, <laughs> so it's sort of the feeling that it creates driving in your car with your favorite tunes blasting on the radio, you know. What more can you ask for? Not much. Denise Sandoval, professor of Chicano and Chicana Studies at Cal State University, Northridge, where she studies low riding. Denise, great to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you so much. You can see how they get low and slow in Sao Paulo. We have a trailer to a documentary about low-riding culture in Brazil. That's at theworld.org. And for a taste of low-riding culture in Japan, we close today's program with this song by Mona, a.k.a. Sad Girl. 
She sings in English, Spanish, and Japanese. Talented woman. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Catch you all tomorrow. I just want to fly high, want to be a flower. Touch it, I got Linda, so no toki gachita. Sexy mamacita, living vida loca, en la esperanza. I'm an egoista. I just want to fly high, want to be a flower. Touch it, I got Linda, so no toki gachita. Sexy mamacita, living vida loca, en la esperanza. I'm an egoista. You never know, you never know. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International